0: Welcome to the University of Bath's Research with Impact podcast. I'm Ronan Pease. And for this series, I've been speaking with some of the university's world-leading experts whose research is tackling current challenges that face our society. In this episode, the topic is big data, the vast and growing flood of information that can be hoovered up from our increasingly interconnected world and processed by our ever-faster computers. The question for the experts this episode... How to make it work for society. First up, Professor Chris Budd from the University's Department of Mathematical Sciences and Institute for Mathematical Innovation. Chris's work creates and analyses mathematical models of the real world to help his team understand complex systems. Their methods can outdo experienced clinicians in diagnosing bone fractures, help foresee the spread of disease or improve the accuracy of Met Office weather forecasts. Which is where we started... After all, weather forecasting is almost the original big data venture, measuring today's atmospheric conditions to foresee tomorrow's rain, sunshine or fog. And they keep getting better.
1: The weather forecast has improved through three reasons. One is we are getting much more data from satellites. We get about a million pieces of information to inform a weather forecast from a satellite or ground stations. Then we have the 10 billion equations that we have to solve, and we're getting much better at solving those on faster and faster computers. And also what we call our models for the weather are improving as well. And it's the combination of those three which lead to better weather forecasts.
0: And and I'm not right that, in a sense, your part is that those models in making the use of the data smarter. So it's actually accelerating beyond what Moore's law gives us in terms of computation.
1: That's a very good description of what I do. So what we're trying to do is to essentially combine the models with the data as effectively and as quickly as possible.
0: And presumably it's not easy because otherwise someone
1: would have done it. Well, (laughs) lots of people are working on it (laughs) and and we get better and better at it. The, The first mathematically-based weather forecasts were actually done in around about 1920 by a guy called Lewis Fry Richardson. But they didn't really become at all accurate until the 1960s when we had reasonable computers. And now they're just getting better and better as the computers increase. But as you say, we're going beyond Moore's law because it's not just the speed of the computer that matters. It's the speed of the algorithms that we use on the computer that, that Essentially, we're getting the same speed up from the algorithms as we are from the computer hardware.
0: And to be completely clear, some of your algorithms are being used, as I understand it, by the Met Office.
1: Some of them are, yes. So the algorithms that I've worked on have mostly been on fusing the data with the models. But I should say that we also have other people at Bath, like my colleague Iker Muller, and he's done some fantastic work on speeding up the the algorithms and those His work is also now being used by the Met Office. I'll try and explain the way the weather works. You can get what are called inversion layers. And an inversion layer occurs when you get cold air trapped near the surface of the Earth by hot air above. And when you get that, that's a recipe for fog and it's a recipe for ice. And what we did was significantly improve the forecasting of these uh, inversion layers. And... The forecasts that we were able to improve the accuracy of then feed into software which is used by county councils in order to improve things like the gritting of roads and also to airports so that they can better predict fog.
0: And as I say, this is about being smarter with the data that the satellites and the weather instruments are giving you.
1: It's basically the point of making sure that the data from the satellites in particular is properly incorporated into the actual models that are used to do the forecast. And and the problems that they were having was that the data was not being properly incorporated because they were not reproducing these inversion layers, the trapping of the cold air near to the surface of the Earth.
0: Because, you see, in a sense, it seems to me to get to the heart of big data, which is there are huge amounts of data out there. And I've seen papers that you've written about Mm -hmm. the amount of data that are out there, but that you have to still work hard to actually make the best use of them.
1: That's right. So this is the the big uh, area of research that we're all involved with nowadays, which is if you have a lot of data, how can you use that to make predictions? And one way is to just look at the data and get what we call a database prediction and uh, a lot of modern artificial intelligence uses this but it's even better to try to get that data and link it up with models of how we understand the world works so we call this physics inspired or physics informed machine learning and and i strongly believe this is the way forward into the future
0: you were working on big data for the uh, COVID response. Very much right? so, yes. So I was part of the team of
1: scientists looking at, at how we could better predict COVID and how we could understand the
0: impact of COVID on human beings, yes. And this wasn't at the biological level. This was actually on that human level of, I don't know, of people walking yes. around or whatever.
1: Well, I, I like to think of COVID as, as having uh, three bits. You've got the, the biological level of what's happening inside someone who is infected They then breathe out the COVID particles, which which get into the atmosphere and move around and so on. Uh, And then those particles get into someone else and infect them. So you've got biology with the person infected, biology for the person being infected, but between the the two of them is physics. So that's where I come in. (laughs) So uh, I was primarily working on the process of how COVID aerosols get into the atmosphere, how they circulate around, how they uh, can infect people and how we could introduce mitigation strategies to reduce the level of infection.
0: And where's the big data in that? Is that just to do with the, the air circulation patterns or is it to do with whether people are in a supermarket or a train or what their behaviour is?
1: So very good question. So we, we, we're looking at big data of the way people move around, as you say, how trained supermarkets, all that sort of operates, how schools, how universities, how people move around. So we we had a lot of CCTV data of people moving around and and understanding that. Then there's the other data that you're taking by sort of measuring levels of air ventilation and so on in buildings. Other areas of big data might be how people are moving around the country, how students, for example, move around the country and might carry infection
0: around and and stuff like that. And so... How did you get involved in this? I mean, was, did you get a phone call, as it were, from Whitehall saying, Professor, can you, can you help us out? Or w- were there mathematicians you were working with who decided to get, get involved?
1: So the, the whole process of mathematical modeling, the sort of stuff I do, is you've got to go out to where the problems are and dig them out and work with people. If you sit in your ivory tower, nothing will ever come your way. So that's what we did. And, we got very involved with the body called SPY-M, um, the Scientific Panel for Infectious Disease Modelling, which was informing SAGE. Uh, so I would be meeting with SPYM m uh, about once a week. And I wasn't officially on it, but I was meeting with them every once a week, telling them about the sort of results of our modelling work. And then SPY-M was feeding directly into SAGE. So that's that's how the process
0: worked. I mean, when you look back at this work, maybe you haven't finished it, of course, but when you look back, do you, could, do you have a sense of satisfaction that you've made a difference?
1: I am very proud that we did our bit. I hope we did. We, if I saved one person's life, that's all that matters.
0: I was curious about another paper of yours, which came out quite recently, which was uh, using uh, machine learning to improve diagnoses of, well, in this case, it was hip fractures, which was a surprising story to me.
1: So this came from uh, the work of Professor Richard Gill, who's in mechanical engineering, who does a lot of work on sort of hip joints and so on. And Richie approached the Institute for Mathematical Innovation, of which I'm the Director of Knowledge Exchange, to ask if some mathematical support could be put into the diagnosis of uh, hip fractures from x-rays so he works very closely with the arthritis and other fracture related people uh, in 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 the hospitals in bath and they provided a lot of very carefully anonymized x-rays of people's hips and the um, imi team of which I was a part, developed machine learning pre- procedures so that if you gave an X-ray to the machine, it would then be able to diagnose the type of hip fracture consistent with that X-ray. The, the thing about hip fracture is that it's very, very serious. If if you are... Typically, hip fractures occur with elderly people, um, often elderly women, and they are often fatal. So if you don't diagnose and treat it very, very quickly, then the patient will die. So what the doctors wanted was techniques which would speed up the diagnosis process. So this is what Professor Gill was involved with. And so the machine learning gives a way of speeding up that. And it means that the paramedics on the scene can kind of use these techniques, even if a doctor isn't available to do a, a diagnosis.
0: But in principle, the data would go straight from the X-ray machine into Into, the computer. And then a diagnosis, yeah. And so the paramedic
1: could then act more quickly.
0: My next stop is the university's new School of Management building, where Dr David Ellis describes himself as a computational social scientist. His work bridges psychology and data science so that his findings end up being published variously in psychology journals, medical ones, public health, computer science, communications and so on and on. And his big data encompass us and our phones and computers. Although he trained as a conventional psychologist, it's our relationship with digital media that fascinates him, as revealed by the way that we use our devices. Computational social science is the idea of using technology or what's termed big
2: data to try and answer questions about people in society. So in psychology, we would historically always put people into a laboratory and we'd study them. But if you think about all the data people generate when they're walking about, when they visit their doctor, when they get on a bus, when they pay for something, it's about using that data to then understand people and their environment. So you're a professional spy? (laughs) No. That's one one way of describing it, yeah. Um, I think the opposite. Well, I suppose it's doing social good. The way I kind of come at it is to try and do social good with with technology, to try and make it help people and, and protect people, if you like.
0: I mean, it is quite interesting. Yeah, we're all familiar with the things that our phones do, but we still think of them as technology, as in some sense impersonal. So I suppose what's interesting is this idea that you can get the data that tells you something about personality or about the psychological things of someone.
2: Well, if you think about the amount of data that people generate from their phone, I mean, it's both, it's pretty much essential now for personal and social, you know, our occupational lives as well as our social lives. So... There's a huge amount of data in people's phone that's highly precious to people and also data that can be very useful to, to social scientists.
0: So in a sense, the question is, aren't you overwhelmed? How do you filter down? What are the kinds of questions you're trying to tackle?
2: So I, I think as a psychologist, I'm interested in questions about you know what this data what these technologies can do to make people healthier or happier or how can we protect people from harm? Um, Because obviously the the beauty or the the realities of the online world is that there's a lot of push and pull. It provides us with many benefits. It provides us with lots of positive experiences, but it can also provide us with negative experiences. And so I'm interested at that kind of intersection where you kind of push the positive and try and reduce the negative, if you
0: like. I guess that um, everyone's worried about digital privacy. You need to have this kind of information to do your research and you are probably finding things which are quite interesting and important.
2: One of the big things that's kind of come out of our work is that there's, I mean, psychology for the last 10 years or longer has always worried tremendously about the impact of technology on people, but at a very general level, you know, people play too many video games, Facebook's ruining my child's life, you know, we spend too much time on our smartphones. And most of our work's shown that that's just far too simplistic. You know, actually understanding what the impact of one smartphone app is on your well-being sounds like quite a simple question. Or you just look at how much time they're using it. But how much time someone's using the technology isn't actually that. There I say it's psychologically informative. It can be, but you have to then go back to those basic psychological questions about what's the motivation of doing this. Doesn't make people happy. What are they doing on the device? So if anything, we've spent a lot of time undoing or trying to kind of go take a step back and say, actually, how do we do this work better to get answers to those bigger questions?
0: Okay, so you're reassuring us. Are you equally, though, finding that there are things that you would like to change? That's a good question.
2: I mean, <laughs> I, I think, so going back to the point about ethics and responsible innovation, I think there's something really fascinating where people who develop technologies, well, it can be anybody who can become a technological leader. Um But we have this habit of often developing technologies and thinking about the social ramifications later. I think I'm really interested in how we can, without disrupting innovation, how can you start thinking about those things earlier in the process so that you can then not run into the same problems that we've often historically run into? And whether that's scientists overemphasizing harms that maybe aren't the right ones to look at through to companies not realizing that they might be breaching various privacy laws. So I think it's about It's about improving the design of that technology as we go forward.
0: That's what I'm personally becoming more interested in. What about the positives? I mean, do you actually come out with the positives, the psychological positives from from digital media?
2: I I think most technology is successful because it allows people to do things that they enjoy doing. Mobile phones or smartphones allow us to talk to each other. We're inherently social. People like being sociable. If you think about the COVID pandemic, that was probably one of the only ways we could be social. That's why they're popular. You know, it's why TikTok's popular. It's why YouTube's popular. People like engaging with that content. Sometimes that gets a bit missed from the debate, at least within a lot of psychological debate and theory and, and issues, is that actually, Helen, why do people want to use this? Because they like to. That's that's the bottom line. That that It does expose people to harms. It does expose people to content that might not be suitable. It exposes them to, to actors who might be looking to harm them. That's inevitable. I don't think you can ever remove that completely. But you can understand how to protect people. But I think that argument of just saying we should use the technology less will not, you know, it's like telling a teenager don't do something. Well, they're probably just going to do it more. And when you
0: say protect people, is that sort of what you're saying about a healthier relationship? But I don't know whether it would be um, some way an app can intervene and say... Okay, this is going too far or something like that. I don't know what that would be.
2: Well I mean I think I think one of the again, sometimes the debates often get skewed. I mean the 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 bigger digital harms that people potentially face are things like data security or privacy violations. And I think you know we're all giving away huge amounts of data every day on our devices. There's no doubt about it. Now, some of that is essential for those services to operate properly. Um, but companies have a duty of care to make sure that people understand what data has been collected and how can they opt out. That's an area that needs huge amount of work. Because um, even if you look at most people have very little understanding of what data they're giving away when they log on to Facebook every day, for example. And some of our recent work has asked people to kind of think about as they use their mobile phone, what data do you think you're giving away? And it's a bit of a mixed bag. Some people are. That's a generalism of saying people are not aware some people are but the vast majority even if they are aware then how do you how can you still engage with that and pull pull some data back so that's probably a bigger challenge than you know it's not to minimize other online harm but for most people if their bank details are compromised that's going to be a bigger bigger issue what kind of digital footprints particularly Interest you or alarm you so i think the nhs has an enormous amount of data about people um if you think about how not only the amount of data about people just per se but also how sensitive that data is because it's medical data so you know it's anything that someone's been diagnosed with the drugs they've been prescribed where they've appeared in the nhs when they've appeared there you know Uh, some of our work has looked at both people's medical records but also how you can link that to different bits of data so that's one of the big Powerful potential benefits of digital footprints or digital data is that you can start linking things together. So you can link someone's health record with, say, their um, their birth or death records or their education records or their social security records. And then you can start to answer lots of different questions.
0: I mean, that one is... I think so interesting because, you know, when the pandemic, for example, but more generally, we know that if you look, this is medical statistics, if you look at lots of people, you can find trends and patterns which might advance medical science. But you're saying that actually the aggregation of these data can work actually not to the general population, but actually lead back to individual people. Potentially, if you, I mean,
2: the work we've done there's lots of checks and balances to stop individuals being identified in those kind of data sets. But yeah, you can, there's this kind of argument that this data will help drive the NHS forward in the future, because rather than having to do specific drug trials, or you know, you, you, you in theory, could find anybody who's been on a certain combination of things or groups of people who've been on a combination of drugs or whatever to see well, what works before you go and start doing more experimental work. That, that's the theory in practices. A lot more difficult than that because data doesn't always look as nice as you'd want it to.
0: And here, are you thinking about the data that the NHS holds on its own databases, or is it the th- the patterns of, that you can pick up from mobile phones, either the Google searches or just even the GPS being at the, the surgery or something? Well,
2: I mean, in theory, you could link those things together. Um, I mean, you've got the NHS's own data systems, but then you've got NHS numbers that can be linked to other bits of data that either government holds or you can ask people to down, you know, people have the NHS app that can then act as a further link so again there's there's kind of uh, drowning in opportunities there but then it's also this is why i think it's right to then work with people within health or within medicine who might actually be able to help refine some of those questions or or psychologists who can help find some of those questions
0: in a sense you're identifying the, the issues hmm. are you also identifying the solutions or the things we should be doing
2: yeah, I, I think so. I mean, so, so a lot of our work in the past looked at um, basically looking at how people engage with the NHS and what happens when people stop engaging with the NHS. So, for example, people who are missing multiple appointments with their GP, um, you can look to see what might predict that happening. Uh, and then you can also see what might happen further down the line. That can then help improve systems or flag up people who need a bit more support. People who are missing multiple appointments, there's usually something going on that's not good um to the degree that actually rather than any kind of punishment there needs to be additional service probably there to help those people get over the line to 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 turn up at the doctor so and, you'd have the surgeries phoning them up and saying I mean, we think it, you really need to attend but I, and i think whether something like that could be automated you know is is an interesting it's almost like turning the data science on its head and saying well look we've we've found these associations these links how can you then build new software, new tools to help support these people. Because there's always the argument, oh, this will require more resources. So I think that's where technology could could help. That's a challenge because putting new things in the NHS is is a challenge, but that's something that we're working on at the moment.
0: People are at the heart of the work of my third and final guest. Although based in the Department of Mechanical Engineering – Professor Linda Nunes leads the newly established Centre for People-Led Digitalisation, the point being that engineering and innovation work only if they work for the people that use them. Her team aims to help industry reap the benefits of adopting digital tools and new ways of working by ensuring people are put at the heart of the process.
3: If you look at digitalisation, or so you digitise something, often... We just look at the technology and try and improve our process of what we're doing. And we sometimes forget about the people. So we'll do the, the changes and then we'll think, oh, got to think about the people now. How do we make them use the technology or how might they use the technology? So when we look at people-led, we're actually saying that we explicitly consider this at the beginning. It's just, because good change management in the first place. But we're explicitly doing it to try and improve the kind of impact and benefit of using digitalization or digitized tools or new digital technologies. So it's explicitly considering people, and appropriately. So actually they have a good job, a good work, and they actually involve and actually want to invest in the digital journey that companies might be on.
0: So the starting point is that bringing smart technology into the workplace, into the factory or whatever, is going to make things better, but... Only if it's...
3: Only if it's adopted. So if you, if you look back in the... see even back to the 1980s, when we looked at flexible manufacturing, where we automated manufacturing, what was happening is people would put these fancy new fantastic machines and actually they weren't giving the benefits that you expected and you weren't getting the benefits because actually the people didn't understand it they were a bit scared of it maybe they hadn't had the proper training they hadn't been engaged and actually it's maybe not the best thing to use for that particular process so we're just trying to avoid that so we actually get the real proper adoption and proper benefits for uk manufacturing so for example it's a good number of years ago we went into a company who had um Their lead time for their manufacturing process was six weeks. And we put in a a simple, and it was a simple, digitise a particular part of the process. But actually it was with their involvement, they were part of the process, they were parts in how might we do it better. And we got that lead time down from six weeks to a week. And actually, probably a day if we chose to do that. So and that
0: really translates into productivity. It, it,
3: yes, it, it can make a, a really good difference. But it has to be right. And then the, the people wanted to do it. They were engaged with the process. They, they had buy-in in the process. So we didn't just say, oh, here's a digital tool, just use it, or here's a digital technology. We worked with them about what, what, how do they look at the job, how do they do it, and how might the technology help them do the job better what we're doing is we have industrial partners that are working with us and there's a number of ways of doing it we're doing wider surveys and understanding we're looking at good practice across sectors not just a single sector because my kind of stance is no matter what sector it is whether it be infrastructure whether it be manufacturing aircraft or medical devices or looking at green technologies you have a process of inputs and outputs and the outputs is again what you do so to me it doesn't matter what process it is you could actually also use it for healthcare. so we have the health service executive in ireland that are really keen on this. It's still a process, inputs and outputs. The outputs are still saying that you want good adoption. So you have for that process, what is right for that process. So that could be quicker throughput, or it could be getting the right products through properly, or it could be um, having better healthcare. It could be any of these things. You're looking at an improvement in the process. So when we look at it, we get enough data and information to then see, is there any patterns? There are things that work well. So things that are successful might be because actually we engaged people right at the beginning or we understood what the key metrics were, what were the levers that maybe help us do this better. And that's done by a whole lot of data analytics and more evidence coming in. And then we look at these patterns, we have general rules and then we apply it to the industry we're looking at. Now, naturally, some industries might be quite different. So if I look at the aircraft sector, they're very technologically advanced they have a lot of digital tools already, a lot of computer-aided design and manufacturing. And I could go and get all the data about bits of aircraft, how many times it's been manufactured. It's all digital. They have all that information. But I might go to the construction sector. And that's a lot more various still technologically advanced in areas, but it's more pockets of excellence. And what you might find there is some people are craft level because that's the skill they've got depending on what you're doing. Others might be modular construction where you are or doing a bit like the aircraft sector, bit making stuff. And that's what we're we're kind of doing. We look at all of these and see if the patterns are similar. Well, I was
0: going to say sort of building a a jet engine and mixing concrete, it's sort of very different ends of the the production process. And when you're also talking about the the health sector, um, I mean, there are legions of stories of some marvellous widget that's been brought in that the doctors or nurses just leave to one side because actually for all its clever, cleverness it's not
3: doing the job but it, but it can work quite well so mm. years ago um, we did some work in cancer screening and we um, there was something in this particular cancer was something four and a half million tests done a year in the UK and this is when it's cancer you, you want that feedback quite quickly the patient doesn't want to be waiting for weeks to find out is that a yes or no, what it is but in effect it's still a process so you got your sample taken you went to specialist lab you got it tested and you had a, a yes or no or not sure we might have to test again so in effect it's a, it's a process coming out and by applying good principles what we then did is we looked at and said how can we streamline this how can we make it better so one of the big sticking points here was you had the people that um, looked at the, the image of the cells to see does that cell look normal or is it slightly different or not? And what we did is you created some new technology that then says, actually, we can automatically measure that. We can automatically check it based on what we found out. And then the pathologist, or they could then actually only be presented to the, the samples that are important. Because they're looking through a microscope, they can only work 50% of the time because you've got to look at their health and well-being. So they're, in a way, a a block in the system. But that is no different. It's still a process. I'm not a medic. It's not my expertise. But I'll ask questions based on manufacturing processes. So if you're, in this particular case, we're looking at antibodies and, you know, mixing it with the cells. And they'd wait two hours before they checked it. So I said, well, why is it two hours? And of course, that's our standard practice. So we're not doing anything wrong. It's what they normally do. What you actually find by that basic challenge, because I'm looking at not from a medical point of view, but from a process point of view, within 10 minutes, you could get 98% of the results. It is all about, it is about impact to me. It's got to have a a benefit. And one of the things on the Centre for People-Led Digitalisation, one of our metrics is about engaging industry. That is one of our key targets. So we start off with our founding partners, but our remit is to expand that. And we already have people wishing to come on board because they they know what the challenge is. And then what we do is we can embed people into their companies to do some work. We can do case study works. We have a PhD student going to a local company in Bristol for three months to work with them. They'll be embedded on site and learning. And so they'll learn from the company and the company will learn from them. And it's a kind of win-win. I like seeing impact. I like seeing, like that company, like I say, with a six-week lead time down to one week, they would be saying to the customers, we'll give you the feedback within one week or you'll get your money back. That's quite a nice sales pitch.
0: And that brings us to the end of this episode on making big data work for society. Thanks for listening to this University of Bath podcast, Research with Impact. Next time, I'll be asking, how can we tackle preventable diseases? And I'll be speaking to Professors Arzul Saatbaeva and Harry Rutter, as well as Dr. John Campbell, to dive deeper into how their research into vaccine stabilisation, into obesity prevention and into exercise and cancer is making an impact. If you want to find out more about the research projects we've been discussing in this episode, You can visit go.bath.ac.uk slash research with impact, that's with hyphens, or follow at Uni of Bath. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please like and subscribe. I'll see you next time.